All right. Well, welcome, welcome to the 33rd episode of the We All Serve podcast. Here we are. Um, I am Sheldon Klein here with my brother and friend and the birthday boy, Angel Angel Torres. There we are. So you um, you are now a legal age drinker. Is that right? Yes, yes. And I am definitely, definitely giving the, uh, the whiskey market uh, my fair share of my stimulus package. I like it. I, I like it. I like it. Um, well, you know, happy birthday to you. Um, anything, anything special? I'm sorry. You were saying, I'm sorry. Uh, it was, it was, I had it on YouTube on, uh, on my phone and it was streaming and there was a delay. And after you would say something, it would pop up on my phone on my YouTube. I'm like, that guy sounds just like Shalom. And that guy on the screen, he's good looking like Angel. Holy cow. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. So, no, I was asking, did he do anything special for your birthday? Well, it was Valentine's Day. So, you know, it's uh, kind of a double dip, like some people who have Christmas and stuff. But, um, no, we just, you know, we got snowed in pretty good and um, celebrated Valentine's Day. Went to the outlet mall a little bit and uh, walked around, then came back and did some office decorating. So, that's about it. Nothing, nothing yeah. too fancy. Had a nice, nice, quiet dinner and relaxed. It was great. You know, nobody yeah. shot at me. I didn't get, I didn't have to drive in some crazy snowstorm. It was perfect. Good deal. Totally good deal. So, um, so I'm noticing something new on the uh, on the wall behind you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I got a new shadow box. It was a birthday gift, and I never, you know, I, I never had a shadow box before. I had this thing. I'll show you right here. Uh, the the certificate next to it. It's kind of the summary of my career. And I actually got uh, 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 Tina got me a shadow box, which I never had. I never, you know, I never really thought about it. And she found all my medals and stuff in a box in the closet, like in the closet behind me. And she's like, "Why the hell don't you hang these up?" And I'm like, "Ah, you know." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she just went out and did it, and for my birthday, and it was there it was. So it was pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Summary of your career. Um, you know, you you came in, and as you always say, it's a it's it's a sign that the uh, that the Navy doesn't have checks and balances. You were promoted a couple of times, once so. or twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I ordered exciting. myself a birthday gift. I ordered these T-shirts that I got from a veteran-owned business, and it says, uh, if you can see, it says Pirate Hunter, and that's what we used to attribute to the, the Visiboard Search and Teaser teams. <laughs> I love it, man. And it looks, I mean, I can't really tell from the distance, um, but it looks like good material. It looks. It is really, really nice. Like the, the sleeves are all reinforced. Like you can see this. Sleeves are all reinforced. Really nice. I mean, kind of like the gear you guys, nice gear you guys get in the Army. We don't get any nice stuff like that in the Navy. Yeah, well, they're expecting it, it, it all to, you know. Oh, I, I, I have to say this. Um, you, as you know, Angel, and I'll, I'll let our, 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 listeners and viewers know next week we are having our first coastie on yay puddle skippers well hey 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 be nice because <laughs> i love yeah. it you know me man i love the coast guard i just i just get behind I know. That, I love so the, the reason i was just thinking about that is is he and i were just talking yesterday and um and vince thomas he's he's awesome he's gonna be amazing and he was just telling me about how much he loves He's actually currently on active duty orders for the Coast Guard. He's a Coast Guard Reserve officer, but um, activated right now. He was telling me his fondest memories are uh, are in the collaboration that he's had with his Navy brothers and sisters. So the reason I say that um, that that they don't give you good things in the Navy is because you actually have to work and you actually have to like use those uniforms. We just do it like, hey, it's just 
yeah, whatever. It's, 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 you know, we, we, we wear it. Um, and it's gotta, it's gotta look cool. You, you don't aim to look cool. You honestly don't look very cool at all. So, no, hey. no. Uh, the opposite of the lacking of cool. I think that's the actual definition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unless you're like some seal or something like that or EOD or special force. Those guys are cool. They come with the sunglasses. I think you, you get your trident and then they give you your sunglasses and then you go run and gun and do cool stuff. I like it. I like it. So I want to bring in our, I want to bring in our guests, but I do have to get special forces. Absolutely. Uh, cool. exactly. Speaking of was... Tina, who went to Ohio state, our guest there we go. You were waiting on that, weren't you? Well, first of all, before before I do that, and there he is, Adam. Um, so before before we go there, I did want to say that if you are um, just listening to this conversation, make sure you're getting on YouTube, clicking subscribe, getting on Facebook. We uh, we stream these conversations, and if you are just watching, um, you should be getting on your favorite podcast app, clicking uh, subscribe, rate, review, and share. It makes it easier for people, uh, veterans, or all of those that serve. Um, to uh, to learn more um, from the amazing conversations we have, including with our uh, our guest on the 33rd episode of the We All Serve podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to uh, to be joined today by uh, Adam Carr, who has over 12 years of service in the United States Army. He is a uh, former Special Forces Green Beret who has hunted Al-Qaeda operatives, developed intelligence networks, conducted diplomatic relations, and briefed ambassadors and generals on geopolitical environments. In 2006, he earned his Bachelor of Arts in Security and Intelligence from the Ohio State University and uh, spent the next you eight years- You had to throw in the V part. You had to put the in there. I did. I did. Here's the point to Asia, including Operation Enduring Freedom, the Philippines and Operation Enduring Freedom, Afghanistan. Adam's passion comes from a deep-rooted desire to serve others. Um, so today we are going to talk about a couple of amazing organizations um, that Adam and uh, I have to give a shout out to uh, Jake Clark, who was my initial connection uh, to Adam, um, because they're doing amazing, amazing things. And I was actually scheduled to Adam twice. I probably would have met you in person twice, um, but actually ended up uh, due to uh, where I'm at right now, having to postpone that. Um, but uh, Adam, I know you have been uh, profoundly affected over the loss of teammates, mentors, close friends, suicide, and that has inspired a lot of your uh, over 20 years of leadership management experience um, and uh, your work uh, in, in working with students, you're working with veterans. Um, and I know uh, you and I were just talking offline uh, with Angel about uh, your uh, wonderful family, uh, Tara and three children, Noah, Jonah, and Nora um, that live in Dublin, Ohio. So Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's really glad to be here. And I appreciate you having me on, Scott and Angel. Thanks for the kind intro. Um, I speak at stages all over the country. And so I give them a really long, robust intro like that. And then the first words that come out of my mouth as I hop off the stage to join the audience and maybe touch in a pre-COVID environment, one of the audience members hands as I say, but what they didn't tell you is that I used to have an addiction to porn. And what they didn't tell you is about the depression and about the grief and the loss of teammates to suicide. And what they didn't tell you is about this and that. And I just really go into what's real about me because all that's great and sunshine and rainbows. But you want to talk about connecting with an audience. It's all about being vulnerable. It's all about authenticity. So I look forward to sharing that with the audience tonight. And hopefully some of what I have to say and share leaves everybody touched, moved and inspired tonight. That's so profound that you say that about uh, the vulnerability piece. Because last week I was, uh, uh, I had the opportunity to be on another show, and um, they uh, they asked me, "What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be uh, have humanity?" And the first thing I said was, "To be vulnerable." 
It's like nobody wants to nobody wants to connect with the guy that sits on his ivory tower with all his degrees and all his you know sacks of money and knows everything. They want to know the guy that 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 had to go through the trenches with them and 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 made the mistakes and and been vulnerable and open because that's the only way to me. That's the only way you can truly um, connect with someone in a very authentic way. Hundred percent, yeah, and that's what we're wired for as human beings is connection. And like, what's the what's the key to a big missing for a lot of us veterans when we get out of service? It's community. Like we were used to being part of a fraternal organization where we had community with our brothers and sisters. And uh, I mean, if you take community and break that word apart in itself, it's common humanity, right? And what does it mean to be human? Really, is to connect with people and to be vulnerable and be authentic. And that's really you know what the way that we preach to live and the way that we really embody ourselves off of is is being vulnerable and and reaching out to people and forming these communities after service. I couldn't agree more. And I tell people, besides the part about being vulnerable, the only thing that can really connect people like that is, is blackmail. <laughs> you got you got some videotape on somebody, man, you're going to connect with them really good. I, I, when will the politicians <laughs> ever learn? You know, I, I've um, briefly looked into to that life and I'm thinking, you know, how can people not know that uh, all eyes are on them when you run for public office and just the mistakes continue to be made? And it just I can't make sense of it. Complacency. That's it. They just they forget. And, and I think in the beginning they, they know and they remember and then they get away with one thing, then another thing, then another thing. No one ever decides to go ahead and just take bribes outright or, you know, start hanging out in, in the porn districts in, in, in Chinatown. They just it's like little bit little bitty pieces of moving your moving your ethic line down yeah. the road and that happens to everybody i mean it, you just sometimes you have to take a line put a line in the sand and say i will not cross you know pull the gandalf you shall not pass yeah it comes down to um not just being disciplined but but living your life a little differently and, and yeah. being a, um, a statesman have you will if you're if you're a male at least and and really what what we believe that embodies is being true to yourself you know again being authentic and being somebody that um, is a leader that that steps up to inspire others and leads by example, both for their family, their community, their professional life, and you know, sneaking around and, and doing things behind people's backs or taking a cut of money. I mean, that that's not what a statesman looks like. And you know, I watched a great movie called the The First President, and it's about George Washington, and it just talks about him being the original statesman. And it takes somebody like that to say, "Hey, I know you guys would elect me a third, fourth, fifth time, but." I'm, you know, what I need to do and what's right for this country is to step down and let somebody step up and lead. Yeah. What was, what was the main, because uh, I, I considered that lifestyle as well. And then when I came to Chicago and until I realized what politics was like in Chicago and, um, and there are some good players in there, but Chicago, Chicago, you know, that's all I can say. But what, what was the thing that made you kind of go, mm, I can, I can be more effective in other channels and other ways and use my talents to for for betterment of, of my community in the sector and the passions that you're driving. What what was the catalyst for that? Or a, yeah, the catalyst, I guess. Well, some of it was, you know, I, I know I wanted to serve. That was a big missing for me was was serving others when I got out of the service. And I'll kind of go into my story here in a little while, but um also, you know. Like any military family out there or first responder family, there was sacrifice to be had. And my wife um, stepped into some big shoes and she was managing all the bills and she was running the household. And I was deployed 10 months out of every year. And, you know, our family kept growing with more and more children. And as I kept going further down that rabbit hole, I mean, 
you think SF is addictive, um, you know, being in special forces, it's that when you get into a community like that, there are so many opportunities out there that a lot of my friends went off and did, you know, and they went there and they conquered that and they went off to other special mission units and everything else. And, th and there were some aspirations I had there, but when I got out, it was really about reconnecting with my family, um, still finding a way to serve. And uh, politics for me right now in my life, I'm 37 years old, it's just not the right time frame. You know, I have little kids at home, they're involved in travel sports and all that stuff. And that's a huge commitment. Like you can get in the spotlight if you're gonna do a United States Senate run, if you're gonna do a United States Congress run, you, you wanna talk about deployments, you're, you're spending a lot of your time in Washington, DC. And, you know, and then the other half of the time, maybe in your district. And then, you know, every few years you have to get back in that campaign cycle and you're on the road. And that's just not good timing right now. There's other ways for me to serve and leading this nonprofit that saves lives and leading a company that I'm building right now that um, is also saving lives in the corporate world and in with schools. You know, that's kind of my mission. And, and I'm really focused on that. Talk to talk to us about that. And still, I'm just going to roll. Is that, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> Talk to us about that company, and I'm curious how uh, you did a, a brief stint, a classwork at Stanford, and that's an incredible university, also. And um, how that helped you, or or connected you, or provided you any resources to really pursue what you really love to do? For sure. So I had had a pretty big gap in education. I mean, I joined um, and and went to school, you know, from 2002 to 2006. Um, like Scott said, from the Ohio State, right. Uh, did an undergrad there in security and intel which was a really cool program that got announced it was basically meant for those that wanted to go serve in the cia or the fbi that you know they actually brought in people that were former case officers generals former pilots and um, fbi agents you name it to teach like tradecraft and teach languages and everything like that was a really cool experience to learn that in college and then to go off and like do the real thing in the army you know and go overseas and, and do all these different types of mission sets but for me, when I got out, you know, I was looking at getting back into some type of education. I still had money left on my GI Bill. I had applied to Ohio State's uh, Fisher College of Business to do an MBA there. And while I was waiting, I saw the Stanford Ignite program come across um, my newsfeed and it was aimed at veterans. So basically, you know, they had I don't know how many applicants they had. I want to say the pool was like five or six hundred people applied. I want to say they accepted the top 30. So there were some. It, it was pretty tough to get in. You had to go through a bunch of different interviews like this. You know, you're on a screen with like 12 other people. They're asking you targeted questions to get in there. And like, I mean, we had some people that, you know, were part of these special mission units. We had some people that are F-18 pilots, some people in the Coast Guard, the Navy, you name it, Navy SEALs, other Green Berets, um, all, all kinds of backgrounds um, that were in this interview process. I ended up getting selected and went out to Stanford for about a month. And it, the, the whole focus is on entrepreneurial studies it's on kind of an mba crash course so you know you're you're learning from mba instructors from the gsb out there at stanford which is great because you're getting a part of that network like you're becoming a stanford alum at least of the ignite program so you get in that stanford network which is a pretty a pretty tight-knit community they plugged us into sand hill which if you know anything about angel investing right sand hill is the place to be sequoia capital all these other vc firms that really seed you know a lot of what you've seen today facebook snap all that and uh, we got a chance to visit companies like google we got a chance to connect with tesla with oculus with facebook we went to the facebook headquarters and got to meet a bunch of folks there um we went to the palantir headquarters which you know they just ipo'd recently so it's, you want to talk about a great network a lot of my friends and colleagues got hired 
out of that in Silicon Valley or in different parts around the country. So, you know, we were all in this kind of exploratory phase of should we go do an MBA? Some of us were enlisted, some of us were prior officers or warrants, and every, all of us kind of took different paths. But for me, while I was there, I got accepted in the MBA program and I said, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot too. Why not? I got the GI Bill money and I was pretty prepared when I walked in on that first day of my MBA schoolhouse because I've already had by this point, a crash course from all these professors in finance and in VCs. And I mean, we had to actually go and pitch different VCs on ideas that we had incubated and really gone through like all the different phases of growth. It was very informative. And I would recommend it to any veterans that, that's listening to this. That's like, hey, I wonder what you know I could do in their scholarship opportunities. I don't know if you can use the GI Bill, but I know you can go and apply for like grants. And I would say this program runs like 2,500 bucks. So it's, it's worth its weight in gold. You know, you get to stay in the dorm there and, and uh, meals are provided. So there's some definitely great um, amenities involved in that. That's awesome. Um, in, in I want to go back to the beginning because you talked uh, you, you talked about some of the things that uh, sort of made you the leader uh, you are. But ultimately, uh, I think we all three of us can agree that the uh, beginning of that journey um, was certainly, you know, your decision to to enlist, your decision to uh, to jump in and start round one of service. And as we always say on this program, we all serve. It's not about just putting on a specific uniform. It's really about any uniform. It's really about really any uniform that doesn't involve camo too. It's right now, as I always say on these conversations, um, we all know, you know, amazing, amazing individuals that are serving and making a difference in the community. And you continue to do that. So that didn't change um, from uh, the date of your uh, of your retirement. But what caused you to uh, to take that oath uh, to join the, the United States Army? And I guess walk us through a little bit of, uh, of your time in uniform. Uh, that's a great question. And I wish I could sit here with you guys and with this audience and say, you know what? The towers fell and I was this hard charging 18 year old that just was ready to go out and kick butt and take names. But truth be told, I was a college or I was a high school student who ripped his hip flexor, who had a scholarship to a major university in our state. And I lost my scholarship and I didn't have anywhere else to turn. So I found myself in a National Guard office, um, you know, kind of walking in there, not knowing what was going on, knowing that I had just watched the towers fall. My senior Were you year. limping in with your hip flexor all jacked up? <laughs> Yeah. Will you take uh, me? Yeah. No, I was like trying to walk straight because I'm like, I need to get in. I, I know that I can pay for school. I had a buddy who was part of a National Guard unit. And he's like, hey, man, we haven't deployed since Vietnam. We're not going anywhere. You should join this. Unit. Recruiters, <laughs> recruiters will know how to handle your paperwork. They'll figure it out. Yeah. And uh, so I meet, I meet with this recruiter. The recruiter's like, you're going to do this job that's all about computers. And, and again, mind you, this is 2002. So like computers were still kind of fresh. You know, everything was exploding at the time. We were just getting off of, uh, I think we were all probably on MySpace at that time, right? So this was still the incubation period for what we have seen as explosion of IT, but they're like, you should go into this job. So I sign up for the job. It's a 31 uniform at the time, which has since been transferred over to 25U and it's a signal system support specialist. Well, I get to training and um, get through basic training and everything. Uh, get down to Fort Gordon and they're like, you are a radio operator essentially. Augusta, and Georgia. Yeah. First, yeah. You'll be the first one shot on the field because they want to sever communications, you know, with hire, with these guys that are dropping bombs and all that stuff. And I said, great. You know, what has my buddy got me into? And then I'm on this payphone call. Cause this is when we had to get calling cards, right? This is before the cell phone. Oh my God. And, yeah. uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I'm talking to my buddy, and I and I can't I can't believe how much money I used to spend on these. It was like a dollar a minute, right? Crazy. Yeah. Um, but he goes, Hey man, I, I got bad news, dude. I know I convinced you to join this unit and I know you're in a job that they told you was one thing and is another, but we also got orders and we're getting deployed to the Middle East. So it was just kind of like the hat trick at this point. And uh, I ended up missing that rotation. They, they ended up going to Kuwait. They were like an in-processing unit or out-processing for um, different um, units that were going back and forth. But um, Congressman Stivers, so I don't know if you're familiar with the political system. Uh, he just made major general, but he was my first commander. He was a lieutenant colonel at the time. And um, now he's still in. He's a United States sitting congressman and he's a major general. And uh, I was just on a call with him this past Saturday. I'm, I'm also in this um, Pat J. T. Berry Leadership Institute. Uh, it's basically an institute to develop potential you know, political leaders or, or folks that just want to get involved potentially in politics. And um, it was cool to see him and see how much he's grown, too, since that time. You know, from lieutenant colonel to major general, quite the leap. Absolutely, wow. absolutely. Yeah. What? Wow! What a what a crazy. Uh, and I guess you you caught the bug because you continued to uh, you you stayed in beyond your first contract. Yeah, but that still doesn't tell me how the hell he ended up being a Green Beret. Oh, yeah. So how do you, how do you get from being a signals signals dude in Fort Gordon out to like you know running and gunning and stuff? That's a totally different career track. It is, and and here's how it here's a conversation I'll never forget. And anybody that's thinking about joining, I hope that this resonates with you. I sat down as I out processed from my um, active duty time, right? Because you go on orders to go through your basic and your AIT, and then you go back to your National Guard unit. So you get your DD 214. So I go to, to leave that temporary portion of active duty. And as we're out processing, there's this gentleman, and I think he's a CW. Is the four year mark? Uh, no, I'm talking about as I'm leaving AIT. So I'm first I'm through the first like nine months getting ready to go to the National Guard because when you're in the National Guard you're a state entity you're no longer oh, a federal. Oh right 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 okay thank you. You're thank just you for that to, where, to become a weekend warrior the one weekend a month two weeks a year thing. Yeah. And um there's this CW five sits down with like eight of us that were part of this class it was a pretty small class. Were you guys in awe? You guys are like, oh yeah I'm like who is this dude you know? And, uh, <laughs> we're not worthy. <laughs> to me, and he's an old dude, right? And now I'm like getting into that zone where like my kids think I'm an old dude. But uh, he he talks to us and he says, "Hey, I just want you to know, a lot of you are in the guard. You're going back to your units. You're in the reserves. You don't you think this is temporary?" And I want to tell you, I thought the same thing 30 years ago when I sat down. And he go and I'm like, "Okay, what is this old guy going to tell us?" He goes, "I've had nine jobs since I joined." And he goes through each job. So I was like. I joined as a supply guy and then he eventually gets to infantry and he has this like career of going to these great places all over the world. It's like, I've seen the world. I could have never done this on my own dime. And he's like, and during that career, I just so happened to be stationed in Hawaii. And he goes, and I bought land right on the beach in Hawaii and he bought it on the cheap, right? 30 years ago. And he goes, my last job I have was a pilot. He's like, I fly these little Cessna planes. And he's like, I saved up enough. He's like, I have bought like four or five planes. And he goes, when I retire, he goes, I'm building a house in Hawaii. And he's like, I'm going to be flying tourists for 500 bucks an hour per tourist. And th that was a lot in 2002, right? Per tourist. And that's my retirement gig. And he's like, and I get this pension. He started telling us the numbers. And I'm like, huh, I'm like, this guy may be onto something, you know, maybe, maybe I'll give this thing a shot. But I'll never forget that conversation because he really opened my eyes to like, Wow, the, the the military itself is such an amazing opportunity to learn all these skills. And it's, it's just because you sign up at the recruiter for one job 
And this is a great transition into what we're going to go into. I signed up as a guy who I thought was an IT job that ends up being a radio job. And yeah, you, like you said, end up becoming a green bread. So fast forward through college, you know, I uh, start to grow up in school, get in this security and intel program. I'm like, yo, I, I want to go and be on the ground. And even though I graduated, instead of becoming an officer, you know, my family hated me for this. They were so mad. They're like, why are you going enlisted? And my excuse was, I don't want to miss the war. And my quickest way to get downrange and to guarantee that I'm going to go in a, in a, in a hostile environment is to go to like a ranger or a special forces unit, or at least the infantry, right? So I signed a contract, um, active duty, uh, as soon as my time was up and, uh, and left my unit, uh, graduated from Ohio State and, and went into this pipeline. That was like two and a half years. Um, I was bragging to all my friends. So we show up at selection, right? Are you guys familiar with the selection process? Yes, uh, I shaking his I'm head. not, Shalom is. Okay, so do you prefer to go by Shalom? You call me anything, it's all good. So I show up at this selection and there's all, I don't know what to think. I'm coming from the guard, right? I'm just like a college kid. And uh, I, I go through this pipeline, um, it, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit. I, I, go, I get to basic training and I'm prior service, right? So I should be submitted to um, and show up like and inserted at a certain phase because I don't need to go through basic training again. Well, you know where you know where your left boot and right boot go. You're like, I got it. <laughs> that that wasn't the case. Me and another what Kazam, who just got back from Iraq, a year tour in Iraq. We show up at this unit in infantry school, and there's a sergeant major sitting there, and there is a colonel Fulber, and there is a E7. And they go, they're looking at our paperwork and it clearly says insert into week 10, which is like just the infantry school portion. It's not the basic training. You're just getting infantry skills for the last four weeks of that training at Fort Benning. Yeah. We get into a shouting match because they're like, no, you've come to the right place. You're going to start basic training tomorrow. And we're like, I'm like, the hell I am. I just graduated from college. I've been in the army for five years at this point. I'm actually supposed to be inserted here. And, and I have my own barracks and my own, and I'm able to have my phone and all that stuff. Cause that's, the right that I've earned as, as being in service. This shouting match ensues to them um, taking our phones, taking all of our bags and everything from us. And this is the time when Iraq was ramping up, right? 07 was a, a very heavy time to like just get infantry guys downrange to because of like the height and increase and the V-bids and all of the different infantry. Yeah, so why wouldn't they fast track you and just put you on week 10? That would just make right? sense to me. Uh, there's some ego there, right? So these guys put us out and uh, there was overflow. So we didn't stay in the traditional barracks where you would have bricks, brick and mortar. They had extra like those um, trailers that they had rented with generators. So we were staying out off site in these trailers and all of these drill sergeants that were there at the time, none of them had um, a unit patch underneath their flag. They were all national guardsmen. None of them had been to combat yet. Some of the guys that were with me had like combat action badges, CABs, because they were from other than infantry units that had reclassed. And, and so a lot of my buddies had patches underneath their American flag. And that didn't sit well with the drill sergeants. And this is also the height of the Iceman, Chuck Liddell, and UFC. So what Wait a minute. Do, so the drill sergeants that were running you through basic that you shouldn't have been in the first place had an issue with you having a uniform item. Well, they were, well, it was, I didn't have anything under my flag, right? Because I missed okay. that Kuwait tour. But the guys I were with, they were right, just, right, right. they were amped up. Because get, what's a drill sergeant's role, right? They are the authority at that moment in time. So to, to know that they didn't have 
anything underneath their flag and that these guys did, there was already an ego check in place. Cause like the guys that had been to combat are like, don't talk to me that way. You know what I mean? And these guys were like, you, you're going to listen to what I have to say. Cause I'm a drill sergeant. So they put us through, they put us in red face, you know, through 14 weeks of entry school, go through the gas chamber. Hey, you're going to, you guys are going to go through four times. We're going to set an example for you, which that was fun. Uh, I can remember, you know, trying to get access to my phone and being like, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. Like, I can't do this again. This is ridiculous. Like this is humiliating, yada, yada, yada. Um, they would make every though, everybody though, band their arms together. So we would lock our arms together and they, and because UFC was, so big bare knuckle boxing was a big thing so they would just pick two random people as you form this circle or like this impenetrable circle and they would say you and you fight and they would just bring people together and it would be fight club and this was a nightly thing in the barracks for 14 weeks right so come week 10 all of the prior service guys that are supposed to be there on order show up and like me and a couple of the other guys that got wronged that had to go through basic again are sitting there still on bunks in the main bay, you know, getting our stuff flipped over every day. And we're looking at these prior service guys like you got to be kidding me that are showing up. And there's enough of them to like bond together that like the drill sergeants don't treat them badly. But that was like my initial experience into active duty, kind of like a baptism by fire. Terrible, terrible experience, but hard in me for sure for the Q course. So get to the Q course, show up. There's all these hard dudes everywhere. Everybody's talking a big game. I'm from the 101st Airborne. I'm from the 82nd. You know, I'm coming from Ranger Battalion. I got four deployments under my belt, all these different things, right? And I'm like, I'm a National Guardsman who went to Ohio State, but you know what? I'm not going to quit. So the guys that would talk the biggest game in Special Forces selection, the end of the day, like when you show up, and I can't give too much away because I don't, there's a lot of books out there you can read and stuff like that, but Basically, there's no structure. You just get instructions on a board. There's no structure. And guys that are regimented and like structure, it don't work so well for them because you got to be able to think outside of the box, which is a really overused term, but you have to be flexible. Guys would quit. Guys would uh, you know, pack up their bags. And some of the biggest dudes that look like John Rambo himself, their bags would be packed. And like that added fuel to my fire because I'm like, these guys are just talking the biggest game and they can't even hang around for the first two, three, four days. So 400 quickly dwindles to 300 people, which quickly dwindles to like 200 people. You know, we get to the end and we got 100 people. And out of the 100 people that are left out of this original 400, when you get through the 24 days, I think it's 14 maybe or 21 days, I'm not sure now. But when you would dwindle you down, there would just be sets of numbers that correspond with the uniform. And you would have a set here and a set there. And uh, they said, go find your number on the pole you know, go find it. And, uh, you'd find it and you're looking at the other dudes. You're like, like, I wonder if he made it. Maybe I didn't like, am I in the wrong group? And then they just take you to separate areas. And eventually, obviously you're going to find out, did you make it or you didn't? And, uh, as soon as we found out that we made it, the very first things that came out of the instructor's mouth were, you guys ain't shit. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and they really went into it. You got two years of a pipeline to go, you know, you haven't done anything yet. And, um, you know, the attrition continued after that. But I start bragging on my friends. I'm like, listen, I was a communications guy. So I'm clearly going to be an 18 echo. I got a high GT score, all these great things. And uh, I picked Russian and they ask you to prioritize your languages. So I just put Russian, 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 Russian. Cause I'm like, I'm going to 10th group. I'm going to be skiing. I'm either going to be in Stuttgart or I'm going to be in, uh, in Colorado. Um, and that was bad. <laughs> you got a vision, that huh? Uh, so what, here's what they gave me. And I was, I mean, I was a cocky young man in my 20s, just like any dude in his 20s, right? You're invincible at that point. Um, they call my name in front of everybody in this auditorium and they're like, Carr, 
you have uh, you're going to be a Charlie, which is the engineer, and you're also the demolitions guy. Except you don't get to wear the big old body suits, right? You just got to go uh, disassemble these IEDs without all the cool kit and shit. Um, they said Charlie and Chinese. And so they gave me Chinese as my language. They're like, you're going to first group. And like all the guys were like, oh, like you're not skiing. And then uh, it, we come to Mandarin. Oh, we come to find out after my wife had been house hunting uh, in Washington, you know, for like the whole Q course, like two weeks out there, like car, you got orders to Okinawa. You guys are going to Japan. You're going to go to one one, which is the forward be deployed battalion. And those of you that don't know a lot about special forces, we have two forward deployed battalions. We have one out in Okinawa that actually falls into the PACOM general. So it's a different, it falls under a different way. And then the one in Stugart falls, I believe under CENTCOM and that's 110. So those are two forward deployed assets that the, the commanders of those two AOs can utilize. And there's actually special missions unit within, within those units too. So it's, it's pretty cool. It was a unique opportunity. We were told it was the highest op tempo in the military. We were also told it was the best kept secret in the military, Okinawa. And, I, and I'd like to agree with that. I think it's a really special place. Very, very cool. I mean, it's a, a thousand miles south of actual mainland. So it's kind of closer to Taiwan and it has that type of an influence. But some of my best memories definitely are, are from my time out on that island with my family. And um, it, I was more of a tourist because I was off island doing other things. But young sailors would not agree with you. They would say that is the curfew, curfew capital of the planet. <laughs> not, when I, not when I showed up. And so when I showed up in 09, um, within the first like month, there was a couple different car crashes where Marines had, had driven drunk into Japanese people's homes off base. Yeah. And then, you know, between that and then somebody was dating like a young Japanese girl, like way too young, a lot of bad things happen. And then it yeah. started to go into lockdown. So, yeah, I think the last decade optically and like, let's look at the country even in the last couple of years, right? Like things are changing um, socially, like across the, the world and things that were even acceptable five, 10 years ago are not things that were acceptable two years ago are not. And so we are evolving as a society and, and uh, the military is too. I heard that. You know, they've made some changes on just like what images and stickers and patches you can have and everything else. So that, you know, times changing for sure. Wow. Wow. What a, uh, what a journey. It cracks me up. I remember, um, and Angel, I don't know if you and I talked about this, but, um, I remember it, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I commissioned through, uh, through OCS. And, um, so, I mean, I went through basic training and we had a, due to a, a weird change in some of the, uh, some of the battalions at Benning, um, we, we had a probably 50% of our basic training company was future officers and the drill sergeants wanted to terrorize us. And, oh, yeah. and it was, it was, it was an experience. And then it's funny. Um, I'm an MP, so a 31 series. So, uh, which is funny. Uh, so when you talk about your story, it's interesting to, to hear what the 31 series was at some point. Um, but, uh, it, it's funny. So we get, uh, tased. And, uh, and pepper sprayed um, in our Bullock, uh, formerly OBC. And it's funny, that's when all of the enlisted, um, usually E7s um, come out and they just love terrorizing the officers because that's the only time that they have permission to uh, spray and tase and, and just totally knock that crap out of, uh, out of officers. So um, sounds like you got that treatment. Yeah, that, that shows you what you don't want to experience, which is, um, you know, and we they took us to Griffin Group to do that, which is like a really cool um, contracted organization in like the Florida area that basically puts you in all these scenarios and 
puts the uh, pepper spray in your eye and tases you and everything else. And you better believe we had some pretty funny GoPro videos from all that too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. You on YouTube. <laughs> so, uh, totally. I know I, I have some of my videos. It's, it's good. So Adam, um, moving forward in your, in your journey, and I can, I can hear your stories for, for days. Um, that really, as I said earlier, that was only the beginning. Um, that, that formed a part of you, but I know that you talked already just even in the very first minute or two that we brought you in, um, you talked about some of the challenges that you have had. And I know that you, uh, are, and I, I say this, this term, not lightly, um, but you are privileged, um, to, to hear and to help, um, those that have similar experiences. Um, I know through the programs that you were running in Ohio, as well as in uh, California, um, you are uh, you are changing lives quite literally, um, and the name of the organization is, is called Save a Warrior. And uh, I am I am grateful for uh, Rachel Jorish, who actually introduced me to uh, to Jake Clark um, back probably over a year ago, where I first heard about your incredible work. So, Adam, tell us a little bit about the mission of the Save a Warrior uh, Project, Save Warrior organization, and what you do every day and how your own experiences influences uh, your work. Okay, yeah. So the mission of Save a Warrior is to not just prevent, but end the veteran and the first responder suicide pandemic. And believe it or not, there was a pandemic before this pandemic that we're in right now, and it was veteran suicide. And to the tune, and, and these are the VA statistics from 2014, right? But that number was around 20 veterans a day. You know, you see 22 come up in a lot of different push-up challenges or different nonprofits that are out there, but it was around that 20 number. Um, a lot of estimates out there have that number a lot higher because they're indicating if somebody commits suicide that it's either there's a note or there's proof that it was suicide. It may not be something that was done by drugs or alcohol or, or some type of other accident. So our mission and goal is to bring people home. And there was a documentary called The War Comes Home that CNN did where we were the feature of that documentary. It was by Soledad O'Brien. And I think that's a really befitting title, The War Comes Home, because so often it does with a lot of our brothers and sisters and that integrated that part to integrate back into society can be really tough to get connected with community a lot of what we've seen uh happens when folks get out is that they lose that community and they isolate and this is a really tough time right now with covid you want to talk about being isolated i mean we're seeing spikes in domestic violence we're seeing spikes in mental health crises spikes in suicide certainly but our mission since day one has been able to, to put a dent in the world and put a dent in that and by what we've done is we've created these intensive integrative models where it started as a five day experience. We've been able to shrink it down to this 80 hour experience time on target where somebody comes in, most of which come to us like this, you know, last stop on the block. I've tried treatment. I've tried psychotherapy. I've tried cognitive behavioral therapy. I've tried, you name it, right? I've been on the drugs um, with different mental health practitioners and none of these are working. So I find myself here and I got a date circled where I've already tried it. You know, we have people with fresh stitches that have tried cutting their neck, you know, a month prior, um, people that have been inpatient for a year. So last house on the block and what ends up happening in that time frame and an 80 hour period is enough to wake someone up, walk them back to that original crime scene of, of where the, the trauma occurred in their life, you know, and we have, we don't look at something as post-traumatic stress disorder at Save a Warrior. We take that D out, that a whole identified patient. Like you have yeah. 
post-traumatic yeah. stress. And post-traumatic stress is a perfectly normal response to a really effed up situation. And if you take any civilian that thinks they're better than you or that thinks that something's wrong with you and you put them in that same scenario, send them down range, have them get you know, splattered by one of their friends from an IED, have them have to pull the trigger on a child that's digging an IED or taking that shot, they're gonna have a very similar trauma response, right? What we found though, is we um, looked where nobody else was looking in this country. And we looked at something called the ACE survey. So if you're familiar with adverse childhood experiences, we looked at that. Um, and that's something that a lot of social workers will look at to find like out what yeah. in their life, right? Well, it's a 10 part questionnaire. Kaiser Permanente, Kaiser Permanente came up with this study, right? But what they ended up figuring out is, you know, the higher the uptick on the score and the questions are like at any time prior to your 18th birthday, did this happen to you? And, you know, did you live with an alcoholic? Did somebody attempt suicide in the house? Um, were you molested? I mean, there's some pretty intense questions on there. The higher the uptick on the score, the higher the correlation is that you will attempt suicide at some point in your life. And if you, you get above a four, you get a tenfold increase. If you get above a six on this score, it's a 50-fold increase that you will try to kill yourself at some point in your life. This is prior to 18. This is prior to serving our country. Now, this is big data point, right? Most of the folks that come and see us, the average score at Sabre Warriors is six. So put that into perspective. There was already serious trauma prior to even going overseas, prior to even serving our country. So you then go down range and you see traumatic things happen or you have these things happen. And now you have a formula. Build and build and build and build. And you have time on what's already there. That's right. And, and so we really take complex post-traumatic stress. We break it down into two things. We, we have post-traumatic stress, which a lot of times is occurring in childhood. And then you have and, and an ontological insecurity happens in childhood as the brain is forming because the brain doesn't fully form till we're 25 years old, the, the prefrontal cortex. It doesn't come online, which is our executive decision-making function. When you have that kind of trauma at the subcortical level, it can cause a whole slew of problems later in life, whether it's with trust, it's with relationships with other people, it's just with decision-making in general. And then you couple that with, with going to the military, and that's why you see a, a lot of issues. And, and think about it, they give us a good conduct medal. Think about that for a second, really. We get a medal in the military just for behaving. You don't think that they may have an idea of who's coming into that applicant pool at the recruiting station? If you really when I get one of those, it's going to be a big day. I'm going to celebrate that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it's just interesting taking a look at ACE scores and being able to know, hey, this is something that we need to focus on. So part of what happens in our program is we dial it back all the way back to that origin of trauma. It happened a long time ago. We process that trauma. We, we complete what needs to get complete, whether somebody's alive or dead. Completion's a big piece to what we do. Um, we have a ceremony for the dead, so we get to the unmourned grief. A lot of what has us stuck as veterans and first responders is we don't get to the grief. We, keep, we push that out, right? And we don't get to this place where we can truly grieve when we lose a brother, when we lose a sister. I don't know about you, but I was always next mission go. Green light go. And so when I lost yeah, you compartmentalize everything. Yeah. Put I it, said I'll put it in a box, we'll get to it later. Put it in I'll, a box, we'll get to it later. I'll deal with it later because guess what? Yeah. The mission goes on. And how many of you listening right now on this podcast had to, you know, possibly pick up limbs of your brothers and sisters and put them in a truck. And guess what? The next morning you're out operating. Like you don't have time to slow down and deal with that. Um, and the worst, 
nightmare for any of us is to be put on a desk, is to be taken out of the fight. I mean, we want to be part of the action. We want to be part of what's going on. And so there's that underlying fear is like, hey, if I go and talk to somebody about something I'm dealing with, they're going to put me on a desk. They're going to send me to the psych unit or something. And I think that narrative is finally, you know, changing. And that's my hope is that that continues to change because it needs to be acceptable for people to go and talk to somebody like this is a normal human response. Like, you know, we, we all are human beings at the end of the day when we take off this uniform. Your desk analogy was perfect. And I think that it also applies to people that are transitioning after a career. And I know that when I was transitioning, I, it's funny. I was like, dude, you can't run from it anymore. You can't make excuses and put it on a shelf and put it in a box. You got to deal with it or it's going to deal with you. And like you're watching a Cheerios commercial and all of a sudden you start crying. You're like, what the hell is happening right now? The puppies are so cute. Why am I bawling? You know, it's the craziest yeah. thing. And I, I joke about it because it, I, it's a defense mechanism. I, I have to. But the one thing and, and your your point about the DOD and the military and all the healthcare professionals are approaching this problem completely wrong because um, you're not using, you're using a flatline starting point, the active duty start date. Bullshit. This whole thing started way before that. And, and when you start acknowledging that and saying, we're all not created equal, we all came in with different things, then, then you can start to address the issue. And, and I think that's fantastic. And as part of being vulnerable, I want to ask you, you know, uh, it's a, when you have these thoughts, it's a very dark place and it's hard to get out of. And it's like you start thinking things like the world would be better without me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't make a difference. And you could be on top of the world. You could be making millions. Like, you know, I talk about um, uh, uh, Chester Bennington or some of those guys. All the men in the world, all the fans, and everything, you get in this depressed state and you can't see outside this tunnel. And I want to know if you've ever felt where you were inside that tunnel so deep and you needed a hand and what that looked like. Yeah, for sure. I definitely did. And, you know, I, I was at a point in my life where, you know, a big part of and I didn't even get into my story. You know, we got into basic training and, and uh, Q course stories, but th there was a lot of death and trauma. You know, I, I when I say baptized by fire. Uh, the first news I got after coming out of Robin Sage, which is a place where we go dark for six weeks, was two things. My uncle, who was a really close uncle to me and um, always looked forward to seeing him at holidays. And uh, he was cherished and beloved by the family. This is the midst of the financial crisis. And he paid up his life insurance policy to the day and went and stepped in front of a train and killed himself. And one of my mentors in the Q course that same week bit the bullet and hit an IED and got killed. And um, he was on his last tour. So it was like two deaths right away get out to Okinawa, get really tight with the guy, become best friends with him. A couple years later, bury him because he gets hit in the neck with an AK round, which, you know, one of the hardest things in my life was have to go bury my teammate who uh, and stand in his bedroom while his mother is standing there weeping. And we're all just trying to hold it together as we get ready to go on our own nine month rotation. You know, and then losing another teammate of mine. And, and this is an ODA. It's an operational detachment alpha. It's 12 men. You're a family. You're a very small, tight knit group of men. And two of my brothers died. You know, a, a, another one got in some trouble. And his best thinking instead of calling us was to go hang himself. And like that hit the team hard. So, you know, between that, between other things that happened downrange that I won't even get into, but, you know, that's the Temple of Mars 
cars over there, man. And, and anyone that's been downrange, uh, you know, you have your fair share of stories and trauma to go with that. But, you know, losing um, friends, losing family members, uh, getting out. And then that first service I had in 2002, I got really tight with this guy, good looking guy, the kind of guy that all the dudes want to be, all the girls want to be around, Wisconsin National Guardsman. Um, would have never thought he would have done anything. I go to reach out to him and he killed himself on my birthday. And I was like, man, like not only am I having a hard time, like I don't feel like I have anybody to talk to, but like all my friends are killing themselves. Like what is going on? So, you know, I, I find myself talking to a therapist uh, for the first time in my life. You know, the only medicine I ever took in the army was ibuprofen, 800 milligram and, uh, and cough drops, right? But they're giving- Vitamin me M. They're giving me medicine to, to go to sleep, right? Ambien, they're giving me medicine to stay awake. Hey, why don't you try Adderall? Why don't we put you on dextroamphetamine, which is really just meth with a chemical compound change. I mean, it's same properties, right? Let's put you on this, let's put you on that. And lo and behold, the number one side effect of all of these different medicines they were giving me was may cause suicidal thoughts. Imagine that, may cause suicidal thoughts, number one side effect. So I find myself with, with uh, you know, a nine millimeter loaded in a bag of pills and a bottle of Jack Daniels on the internet. And I told my wife, this is like right when Facebook came out and you want to talk about feeling inauthentic. Like I was out, I was telling people things were great. It's great to be out of service. You know, I'm so happy to be home and stuff. And I was dying inside angel. I was dying, man. It felt like somebody stabbed me in the chest because I, I was having to hold it all in. I couldn't share with anybody. I didn't want to burden anyone. I was like, man, I, I don't know what, what's going on here. And maybe I peaked. And they wouldn't give it. They wouldn't get it even if you did tell them. <laughs> yeah. I said, maybe I peaked. You know, I was 32 when I got out and uh, running and gunning. And life will never be like that again. I will never, no matter what corporate job, like you said, no matter how much money I make, it will never replicate the realness of that experience of, of being in service, being about the mission, being about the men. It'll never get that good again. So what is there left? Like that's crazy thoughts, right? Um, there's a lot left in life. There's there's the ability to to pay it forward and to serve other people in different ways. And that's one of the most powerful things I've learned is uh, getting outside of my own negative thoughts and that downward spiral, what you spoke to, you know, we call it a vicious circle at Save a Warrior and you can get trapped in it. Any Anybody can, the best men and anybody. women can get anybody. trapped. The best, right? And uh, Ivy League some, brothers, tons of yeah. money, great family, great kids, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, my commander, I was in a joint Navy SEAL Green Beret soda in Aruzgan province in 2012. And I'm out, I'm out living in a mud hut, right? And the, and the commander comes to visit, uh, Lieutenant Commander Joe Price. Navy SEAL commander, good looking dude, had everything going for him. Suck started a pistol a couple of days before Christmas. He was the commander of our entire soda. This was a guy I think that was over in DevGrew, you know, had all the accolades. And, uh, Tier one operator, yeah. For whatever reason, that's right. So it, it, nobody's immune from this. You, you could be having the best days and years of your life, and then this catches up to you. So you know, my message to anyone out there listening is like, you're not alone if you're feeling this. And there is a powerful solution. And part of that solution is getting to grief, you know, getting to that unborn grief. Um, part of it is having some type of daily practice, like mindfulness, right? So important. Doesn't have to be you sitting Indian style and chanting like a monk all day. You you can do a simple breathing technique, whether it be Wim Hof breathing with a, with an ice bath. You can do um, warrior meditation, which is something we teach in our program that we patented. 
so we can give it away for free to anybody. You know, we don't want to charge. There are some meditative uh, different uh, seminars out there. They'll charge you 2000 bucks to go learn a meditation and a saying, and like, we're not about that. We're like, Hey, we want to give it away for free. Like this is, this is a great practice to have in your life. And, and what meditation does, right. Is it takes you from a reacting mode. Like you're going to react to every little thing. Somebody cuts you off, kid spills milk, might be running your house like a drill sergeant. You you might be having problems at home in your marriage and it just gets you to slow down and respond. And that difference between reaction and response, can be all the difference in the world between a really good dude going to prison or a really good dude having a really good life because that's how quick it, it happens for us. You know, One you decision, can have an instant and, and make a, you can lift your hand or your fist and you can make a decision that you can't take back or you could say something you can't take back, right, to your kids. So, you know, meditation's key. You know, that's one of the foundational pieces. Obviously, I think working out, really important. You know, that, that that's part of doing that PT. It's part of getting up every day. It's, you're getting that endorphins, which is really, really important for the longevity for us. So I think that's so important. Eating right. I mean, a lot of this stuff's implied, but a lot of us just don't do it, right? I think one big piece that kind of I – I haven't met you before today, so if anybody thinks we have, this is not scripted at all. Um, but the one thing that kind of resonates with between what I'm hearing you say and me, my journey, was – I went to a therapist through road. They have the road home program here in Illinois. It's a phenomenal program. Huge, huge fan. And they have an inpatient stuff. I didn't go through that. But one thing that the, the therapist told me was, she says, you heal yourself by helping others. People ask, why are you doing, you know, you're this and you're involved in this and veterans, you're doing this and this and this and you're all over the place. Why are you doing it? I'm like, cause it makes me feel better. Cause I'm, I'm not chasing my, or running from my stuff. I'm helping people and with with my journey and that makes me feel better and it kind of puts me in a better place consistently. And I think a lot of that seems to resonate um, with your story with me. And I'm like, OK, he gets it. You know, da, 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 we get it. You, you have to give it away. That's the secret. You have to give it away. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. There's two things you got. to You got to seal your own oxygen mask first. And that's first and foremost. If you don't do that then what happens is we, we ignore um, ourselves and our, and our needs or, or things that we need to, uh, to, uh, to do. You know, it could be at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but we ignore the fundamental pieces and give too much of ourselves. If we overextend, that can cause, that can contribute to that downward spiral. But if we get a nice seal on that oxygen mask, get to the healthy grief because it is okay to grief. It is okay to, to, uh, to cry. Because guess what the way to sadness is, is through tears. And you know, as warriors, we carry the sadness for this country so they don't have to. Like that's what we signed up for is to carry the sadness, but we can do it, the mature mood of the warrior, we can do it in such a way that we can grieve healthily and we can still have a really rich and fulfilling life. And how we do that after we get the oxygen mask on is by service to others, you know? And, and there's a saying out there that's so um, frequently used, right? And it's like, it's, I don't care how much you have or what you've accomplished, I, what I care about is how you treat other people, right? And that and that's really the key, right? Because I don't, I, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm active, so are you, Shalom, so are you, Angel. And you see like all these different accomplishments and accolades and this and that, and there's this always searching, you know, and David Brooks writes about this, New York Times bestselling author in a book called The Second Mountain. But it, you know, you're, you're on that first mountain that you're ascending and you're just searching for accolades and you're searching for the next thing and you're searching for the next. And lo and behold, if you're lucky, maybe tragedy strikes or you hit rock bottom or something happens that reprioritizes your life. And you're like, wait a second. I was chasing this never ending thing. It was like the little I was chasing the wrong thing. 
That's right. It was the carrot in front of the, the donkey, right? And I was I was never going to get it. Yeah. Because what getting it is about giving it away. Like that's the key. And if somebody's on this and they're like in a philanthropic stage in your life, like you can do so much. Even if you're not, you can go and just volunteer your time or services. But there are so many different ways to give back just in your community. If you get active and just get outside of that own vicious circle and outside of your head, there are ways to to step up and give back and make an impact. And, you know, I'm, I'm honored and I am privileged. You're right, Shalom. I, I consider myself very fortunate to be involved in this and fortunate that it, somehow I got to be that lucky sperm that connected with an egg here in the U.S. And I got to grow up a United States citizen. Like, man, I hit the lottery and, and I don't take that for granted. That's right. And Adam, I mean, I have to say I, I didn't want to interrupt, but there have been 32 comments um, as of right now that have come in. This met, this conversation is resonating with so many Wonderful. And I, I thank you for, for your service um, in uniform, for your continued service and for all that you're doing. And Angel and I have not spoken about this, but I can tell you that we've never done this before, but we have to have you back uh, to continue this conversation. I, and, I'd and, love to. And, and, and it, it's critical and, and you're, you're literally saving lives. And I, I was brought up with, uh, with, uh, with really a, a, a lesson that uh, when you save one life, it's as if you've saved the entire world. So I can tell you that you have saved so many, uh, so many worlds. And I, I'm fortunate to, uh, this is the first time you and I are meeting on camera, but I'm fortunate to have watched um, the work that you guys are doing. And, and I know it's, this has, this hits home for so many, um, because as you said, when we started this, this conversation, um, your screening process really shows that there are so many people that even pre- uh, pre-combat, pre-enlisting, that that people come in with with all these, and I I've been through your screening process. I've heard those questions. I've I've seen it in action, and I can tell you that that you know if there is something that anything that that resonates with with anybody tuning in, first of all, I I have to say where I'm going to put up on the screen right now before I forget, I want to put up the website for the Save a Warrior um, organization. I, I want to encourage and actually beg I'll, I'll use that word beg um our listeners you know you know make a donation um because literally that donation will be used to to save a life so um i mean adam we've we've covered a lot of ground we've never here. done that we've never canvassed for donations before but this is this is serious Man, so we, we, i appreciate that so much shalom yeah. i'm glad this is resonating with people and, and if all we did was get somebody in the seat from this and, and save the life like you said we, we can start to save the world um, one life at a time and those are the type of ripple effects that happen but um, no expectations but yeah if you if you're feeling big in your heart or, or even you know somebody that's like hey I want to get behind a veteran charity we would love to be the charity of choice I'll tell you that because we're in a place where un unfortunately I shouldn't have to be out there begging for money with a mission this important I mean we we're building right now as as we speak a national center of excellence for complex post-traumatic stress, the first and only in its kind for veterans. And guess who did that? Nobody came to us and said, hey, we're gonna do this for you. You know, as much as I'd like to say the federal government and some of my friends that are politicians that, that work in DC, none of them went there and championed this cause for us. They have been champions with us, but we declared that. We said, you know what, we're gonna build this because nobody else is coming to save us. The only one that's gonna save us as veterans is us. So we're gonna build this thing no matter what it takes. And the DAV, that resonated with them. And that's one of the big four organizations, right? And they're over a hundred years old now. And they said, you know what? You know, we consider ourselves to be the best 
veteran service organization in the country. They and, really are. They yeah, really are. <laughs> in helping veterans, and they said, guess what? We did our homework. And it, when it comes to suicide prevention and it comes to mental health veterans, you guys are the best. And we only partner with the best and we want to partner with you guys. And we want, and as long as you're doing this work, we're going to be a forever partner. So they're putting their name and their imprimatur on the center. And we couldn't be more proud to be partnering with them. And, you know, again, we're in the midst of building that right now. So I would love to come back on and share more about what we're doing. And I can't wait for you to come and sit in the seat and have this experience, Shalom. And I'll offer that and extend that to you as well, Angel. And if you're out there listening to this and you're struggling, it's free to come. You know, we stand by that we'll never charge a veteran or a first responder to come sit in the seat because you're worth it and you serve this country. You deserve to come sit in the seat. So, I don't have anything. I don't have anything left, man. I mean, I, I got everything, but it's for the next podcast. Yeah, no, we, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to do this um, again. Um, and uh, I, I, I have two more. Um, I have two more questions. Um, yeah. First, um, actually came from uh, from one of our listeners. Okay. Uh, who asked the question, you know, uh, actually going back to some of your stories and, you know, there's, I, all of this, I know it's all your, it's all part of the journey. Um, but it's interesting because it's almost two yeah. sets of service, uh, that, that sort of have, have merged together. So during your, during your, your green beret, uh, time, and, you know, you talked about some of your funny stories. I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time of going through basic training a second time. Um, but, yeah. uh, then, then moving onward into, uh, into your, uh, Green Beret status. What were some of the most comical uh, experiences that you may have had? Most comical missions that you might be free or clear to talk about? Oh, okay. So I'll tell you about Bangladesh. Okay. So Bangladesh, for those of you that aren't aware, um, is one of the most interesting and also one of the most impoverished places on the planet. It's overpopulated. Um, it is a really interesting culture and dynamic. There's a lot of pollution um, and, and there's some great people there, but I'll share with you how my experience went. <clears throat> so I'm on Thai Airways, which is a beautiful airline, and I'm flying in to go meet at the Bangladesh embassy. And as I fly in on this Thai Airways, you know, there's all these stewardess and they're putting the orchids on the seats and it, it's really nice, a great display and presentation. Everything's kind of like pink and purple and these beautiful relaxing colors. But the plane is like 80% filled with Bangladeshi or Bengalis, I believe would be the proper term, right? And my buddy that's with me, he's a warrant. And he said, just wait. He goes, you're going to see some things that you've never seen. And I said, oh, indulge, <laughs> indulge me. He said, just wait for it. He's like, all I'm going to say is two words, rat race. And so I say, all right. And I watch, I kid you not, 15 minutes before we land. The plane is now descending. Passengers, please take your seat. The entire plane erupts in what looks like a stock market frenzy. And that, that language, right? Bengali, I believe, would be the language. And everyone's screaming. They're grabbing bags. And they're grabbing all these bags and they're pushing each other. And the stewardess, bless their heart, or the flight attendants, they're, they're trying to like get them to, to sit down. Everyone's fighting as if their life depends on something. There's a race going on. And we're just sitting there looking around. So we land at the airport, we get on the conveyor belt and we have our Pelican cases, right? So we're we're in civilian clothes. We might as well float, flown in a military uniform. Everybody knows who we are, right? We, we got the cool Pelican cases. We, uh, we have the cool sunglasses on and pretty much all a Caucasian group of guys in their you know, 20s, 30s and 40s that have no business being in Bangladesh. On the conveyor belt is um, 
nothing but trash bags with um, like as much duct tape as you can imagine wrapped around them. So there's no luggage. It's just trash bags. And I have no idea how people are knowing whose trash bag is whose because people are fighting and pushing and they're just grabbing trash bags, which are full of their clothing um, and, you know, and, and a variety of other things. So I go to, into the restroom. I said, I got to go take a pee. All of the toilets and sink fixtures are ripped out of the wall. And there are people standing on top of the toilets squatting and there's no stall seat. So I'm just looking like, OK, this is going to be the start of the experience. So we get in, we get outside of the airport and there are people that are holding on to bars and they're shaking the bars as if they're trying to get inside of the airport um, and thousands of people, unlike anything I've ever seen. And there's no traffic lights there. There's a few people directing service. And there's a lot of welded vehicles together that are in variety of colors, like something out of Mad Max, quite literally. And so we got into probably six or seven car crashes on the way to the Pizza Hut. Now, we, we were all hungry. So we said, is there any place here that serves anything that's safe for us to eat? And we're in, at this point, we flew into Dhaka, right? So they take us to Pizza Hut. I guess Pizza Hut is the four-star restaurant of this city. They're like, you want, you want to go where the rich people die and you go to Pizza Hut. We go in there. It looks like there's some well-to-do folks in there, very clean wardrobe and everything. We get a bunch of pizza boxes and we get out to the van, which is like a 15 passenger white van. And there are people that are just smashing their faces against the windows. And it's really sad, right? Because there's a bunch of children. Um, if you've seen Slumdog Millionaire, there's beggar pimps there, right? So they maim children. They'll, they'll poke an eye out. They'll cut a limb off and they'll send these kids that are disabled or maimed to go beg for money. So we were told right from the start, do not give any money away because you're contributing to this beggar pimp society that's out there. So, you know, you're, I'm learning all this dynamic on the go. And this is like within 10 days of showing up on the island, like first mission. This isn't is Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> we get to um, about two hours outside of Dhaka and we're in like what looks like rice patties. It looks like something from a Vietnamese film. And we show up at our barracks that, you know, there's monkeys. It's like something out of an Indiana Jones movie, really. There's monkeys. There's there's a variety of dishes. We go in a room and we see something behind our bunk that's crawling um, about the size of a hand. And it's a tarantula. So we finished eating the pizza and we walk over and we smash this tarantula with a pizza box. And, you know, that was the start of day one of our experience in Bangladesh. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and what, what a way to start. Um, a special forces career, you know, but incredible people, uh, very hardworking, really interesting culture though. Um, you know, a lot of the factories are there. I think like Banana Republic, um, North Face. So you'll see all these people that they don't have any shoes. They're very impoverished, but they're wearing pastel colored like structure shirts or Banana Republic in like pink or yellow shirts and, and khakis, but no shoes. And there's no work for anybody. And it, it's pretty typical for you know, children to be playing on a train tracks that gets used every day. I mean, it's just, it's one of those eye-opening experiences that again, when you say the word privilege, I, I could have been born in that country um, and, and, and raised in that country and not had the life that I have. So I, I really count my blessings. And I try to try to um, not be a jerk to other people when I look at what we all have, you know, especially even my own kids on like Christmas, I try to just slow down and say, you know what, the perspective, right? Everybody only knows what they know. I've, just been my my eyes have been opened up and my horizons have been broadened. But I try to always, um, you know, bleed that off into people I know that are maybe complaining about whatever's going on in life. And you better believe that shows up in Save a Warrior too. It's like guys, we've been here, or, or women, you know, because we serve both men and women. 
we, we've been to these places. Like we actually, we know how good we have it, right? We need to get outside of our own head and, uh, and work through our stuff here this week, you know, get to the bottom of it and make a declaration for our lives, you know, and that's part of Save a Warrior too. You, you got to declare something. You'll do it too, Shalom. They don't call it the deck. They didn't, those men didn't sign that declaration of independence. It's not an agreement of independence. It was a declaration that they made. And what was that? They basically put their pen on that paperwork and like that was a death sentence. Because when the British got that, they're like, we're killing everybody on this if we can get our hands on them, right? You, you got to step into a declaration. And that's what we do. Part of the work we do at Save a Warrior as you head out of, into the world. Wow. Um, so my my final question and what a what a conversation we've had is is just talking about the vision. Um, so, I mean, we have we have your website up there on the screen. And as we said, we encourage everybody to uh, to uh, step up and get involved in veterans that have uh they have some of those that have been uh, commenting and messaging me throughout this conversation encourage you get in touch um to get your seat um but also if this message resonated learn more and share it with a brother share it with a sister uh share it with a friend um but i know you're you're building a world-class center and i know that you are involved in some other big plans too so uh briefly can you tell us a little bit about that yeah sure i appreciate you letting me plug um this other company that we're building. So Jake Clark, the founder of Save a Warrior and myself also founded a entity um, during the height of COVID that was aimed at uh, basically doing large format developmental experiences for people um, using best practices from Save a Warrior and also kind of synthesizing best practices from you name it, anthropology, psychology, psychiatry, storytelling, mythology. I mean, we draw from a lot of different practices, neurobiology and neuroscience, uh, mindfulness and meditation, and kind of custom tailoring experiences for companies. So, you know, a lot of companies, the, and, and the name of the company that we started is called the Western Zen. And that's a very appropriate title because we are steeped in recovery. I can't believe this was available, right? I went to, I went to uh, GoDaddy and the website was available. I'm like, sweet. Got the website, got the name, got the trademarks. The Western Zen is the name of the company. Um, beautiful Enzo Circle is our logo. You know, I'm just getting ready to put out the website that I designed and uh, we're in the final touches of, of putting this thing out. But this company is aimed at doing custom made experiences, very novel, essential, disruptive experiences for companies that are looking, uh, instead of laying off your bottom 20%, we'll work with the bottom 20% and turn them into your top 20. And that's an ironclad guarantee. And I don't know about you, it costs a lot of money to lay somebody off and then go through training and rehire somebody else. And you got to get on ZipRecruiter. Why not see if, if those people maybe just aren't intrinsically getting filled the way they need to? Because it's tough being a manager. It's tough being a leader. And sometimes it takes an outside entity to come in and to kind of change the culture from within. Um, we're also looking at working with school districts. Um, the number one cause of suicide in Ohio, and I bet it mirrors other states out there, um, the number one cause of death mind you, for 10 to 14 year olds is suicide. Like that's a tragedy. Like the number one cause of death for kids that age, middle school kids, suicide. And you know, we live in this world where you're, you're unfortunately a lot of these young kids and I didn't have to grow up with this, thank God. But you know, they're, they're living in a digital world and a lot of the value is being had off of how many likes and loves you get. And like, that's a sad place to be. Like I can't imagine growing up as a kid with COVID, going on right now and like finding myself worth in something like Instagram or Facebook. I mean, those are great platforms to, to, to touch, move and inspire people. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not putting down those organizations because we're partnering with Facebook, but there are ways to use that platform for good. 
But unfortunately, a lot of teenage kids, they don't know that, right? They're just trying to connect with people and, and find totally likes. different and, mindset. They're just wired differently yeah. than us, man. Totally yeah. wired different. Yeah. It's tough. So that that's what we're doing. You know, we have a mission. We One of the biggest requests we asked was, uh, you know, I know you guys do things for veterans and first responders, but like, can you come in and do things for companies? And, we're, and we were like, you know what? Why don't we form a corporation where we can, where our mission is to give back to Save a Warrior? And, and it allows us to stay at Save a Warrior too. I mean, this is our dream. This is what we love to do. And, you know, we're both MBAs and we could both be out there in the corporate world, you know, uh, making a, a huge fortune if we wanted to. But you know what? We, we love this mission and it's one of the ways for us to continue to serve. And, and this is where we want to be. So I'm grateful to be a part of it. And I appreciate you letting me plug that organization, Shalom. And we'll have that website up and running probably by the end of the month. So if you just go to www.thewesternzen.com, same with Facebook and everything else. And maybe I can talk more about that on the next podcast. That you we'll have pump me. it on the next podcast and then we'll put it across the banner and you can just, you know, right there, yeah. right there. All right. Well, thank you, Adam Carr. Um, what a story, what a message, what a service that continues. And um, and appreciate you coming on for what has been our, our longest episode. And honestly, we've only just scratched the surface over here. Um, but uh, I take this responsibility uh, that Angel and I have um, as a platform. Uh, I take it very seriously, and, and it's an opportunity to uh, share amazing people like you uh, making a difference. So we'll conclude by saying, uh, again, encourage everybody to check out savewarrior.org and um, encourage all of our veteran uh, brothers and sisters to, uh, again, tune in because uh, there's amazing people like Adam and so many others. Next week, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Vincent Thomas. Um, Coast Guard officer. Excited for that conversation. Our first Coastie. Um, so, uh, Angel, you'll be nice, right? I love my Coasties, man. They taught me how to go board ships and take them over and stuff. They're awesome. I love okay. those guys. By the way, Vince told me uh, yesterday that he said, you guys in the Navy, you think you actually work. He says, on their boats, they actually feel the waves. I'm just saying. So I know that conversation is it's, it's going to come up. Yeah. In the middle of Lake Michigan, they do. Oh boy, here we go. This is going to be a fun conversation. I know. <laughs> Adam, right. Thank you. Um, Angel, again, happy birthday to you. I love the shadow box. Regards to Tina. And, um, and Thanks, man. And looking forward to uh, to continuing our conversation on episode oh, 34. By the way, see you next week. Go ahead. Tina went to Ohio State also. Yes. Well, tell her I said OH. I will. I will tell her. <laughs> thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks. All right.